Put the fucking mic on. How we doing, folks? It's your boy, DB Barstool Sports Starting Nine, and you are listening to the End of the Bench. Scoot your ass down. Welcome to episode 117 of End of the Bench. On this episode, we're talking Major League Baseball playoffs. We have the ALCS and the NLCS underway. We got games going on today, starting at 4.07. We got some games starting. We're going to talk about why the Yankees can't close baseball games anymore. Can't do it. Just can't. We'll talk about how the A's could not beat the hated Astros. The Padres losing to the Dodgers. And then, of course, the Marlins and Braves series. That was a pretty easy series. I'm not going to talk about so much about that. Just impressed with the Braves pitching overall. We're going to talk about the unfortunate deaths of Whitey Ford and Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan was passed away Sunday. I think it was Sunday night, but it was announced Monday morning. That is right. I'm recording on a Monday. I was kind of MIA this past weekend with uh, some writing I was doing and some college football watching on the weekend. We'll talk about Joe Morgan's passing and what he means for baseball and Whitey Ford as well. Where does he rank amongst the best Yankees of all time? And then we're going to talk about the Dak Prescott injury. It was very, very ugly injury. Of course, I'm a Giant fan. I was watching this game going on, and man, it was horrible. Uh, we'll go deep into that injury. What does it mean for the Cowboys? What does it mean for Dak's future? And then the second part of the podcast, I'm going to talk about the OU Texas game. The Craziest game on the college schedule. I mean, there's a lot of upset wins. There's a lot of teams, ranked teams, losing in big fashion, in horrible fashion. But this OU Texas game was absolutely mind blowing. I watched the game from, you know, I watch every snap. I watch every single snap this year. And uh, I, I went on a radio show right after the game. My uh, boy, Jake Asman, you know him. He had me come on to kind of dissect because he knows I watch every single solitary snap. Of the OU games. So I've watched every snap so far. Thank God they have a bye week next week. But let's get into also actually the second part. We're talking OU Texas. And then we're talking about. What are we talking about here? Uh, So Yankees. My computer's frozen. Oh yeah. And the Lakers won the title. Right. Lakers won the NBA title. 17th title in franchise history. I think that's right. Uh, And Lakers. uh, Where is Kobe? Not Kobe. Uh, Where does. Where does LeBron rank amongst the best Lakers? He's ranked with Kobe and Shaq and Wilt and Chamber, um, in um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Ma- Ma- Magic Johnson. This is ranked amongst them. And what does he? What does his four championships with three other teams mean for his legacy? So we'll talk about that stuff. The second part, but let's dive in to some baseball. So the Yankees lose to the Rays in five games. <coughs> Friday night was a dramatic loss to the New York Yankees and their fan base. So you had Mike Broussard, so Brasso, excuse me, Mike Brasso, a Tampa Bay Rays utility man, hits a go-ahead solo shot off of the hard-throwing Aroldis Chapman in the t- in the bottom of the eighth inning. Three outs later for the Rays, they went on to win the series, beating their rival Yankees. Yes, it is a rival. It's been a rival the last couple of years, but it's heated up the most this year. It has been pretty wild. Honestly, it's like as a Yankee fan and as a baseball writer and I talk about baseball, you, you wish you could see more of a Yankee-Red Sox, Red Sox rivalry. There really isn't one that much anymore. But the Red Sox being really bad this year and it looks like, I mean, yes, we saw the Tyler Austin and Joe Kelly fight, which was awesome. You know, we're not seeing the hatred between both squads. Not like what we're seeing with the Yankees and Rays. So if you remember, Brasso and Chapman had themselves a battle early on in the season. So back on September 1st, the feud began. It was Chapman throwing up and up and in and then behind Brasso's head, throwing 101 miles an hour behind him. It got the bullpens going. It got the it got the team fired up. Benches cleared. Bullpen, the bullpen was running out. You, you love seeing that. But look, let's be honest. Chapman throwing 101 miles per hour is not cool at the, at the dome piece. It's not cool. It's very scary. It could hurt someone or end their career, actually. So the one thing I got to give Brasso credit is that he handled it like a champ. He kept his composure, wasn't mad, didn't show anything, just show any signs of weakness. He stood there in the box. 
And he got his revenge the very next day, hitting two home runs against the Yankees and winning that ball game. But that wasn't the last time Brosnan Chapman would have this heated battle, which was Friday night. So Friday night, Chapman's on the mound. Brasso, this is a thing with Boone, understanding, not understanding, the situation going on. So Boone puts Chapman in to get seven outs. Seven outs. I don't think Chapman's ever done that in his career. Maybe when he was trying to start ball games for the Reds early in his career, being like a long reliever, not even a long reliever. It was like a seven, eight inning guy when he first started with the Rays, when the Reds, excuse me. So, but now he's a closer. He gets a max four outs, maybe five. We never, we've never seen seven ever. But this is interesting to know here. This year, Brasso, he had a lot of really good at-bats, awesome numbers against left-handed pitchers. 47 at-bats, 333 average, four home runs, and an OPS that was through the freaking roof. So they still pitched to a lefty. Look, the Yankees had Britain, and Garrett Cole pitched pretty damn well for a guy who never pitched on three days rest before. Right? So Cole was worth every penny. After that shaky first inning, Cole started to heat up. Cole finished his last start of the 2020 season with nine strikeouts and three, and all, and on three days rest, like I was saying before. This was the first time in Cole's career that he's pitched on three days rest, and he's the first Yankee pitcher since Roger Clemens in 2000, the game four of the ALCS, to allow one hit and at least nine Ks in a postseason start. So Cole is taken out in the sixth, Boone brings in Zach Britton. Britton has been a very, very consistent all year. Very good pitcher. He goes out, strikes out one, strikes out two and one and one-thirds innings pitched. Chapman comes in the seventh, and then it became a nightmare after that. But this is like the first time we're seeing Chapman blow games in the postseason, right? You had 2019, the walk-off home run against Altuve. You had, a, I think it was a year before, year after, no, it was a 2018, I think it was, where he blew a, a game when Correa had a, a double in the gap. You have, way back when he was with the Cubs in the World Series in Game 7, Rajay Davis hit a home run in Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. And then you have Brasso this year hit a home run. Brasso's story in general is pretty spectacular. It's, you know, you get pissed. I'm a Yankee fan. I support them. I write about them. It sucks that they lost. Let's be honest. It fucking blows. I was really, really upset, right? But you got to look at Mike Brasso's career and where he came from. And you got to, like, you, you you can't, like, hate the guy, you know? It's hard to hate a guy with a career like this and where he came from. So I'll tell you a little backstory. The 26-year-old utility man was undrafted out of Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. So already the story is already sick at being an undrafted free agent. Not a lot of stories come out to he's a hero on the postseason, being an undrafted guy. You can only name a few. So on June 23rd, 2016, the Rays signed him for a grand total of $1,000. Not much money. So this is a guy who's played ball his whole life, played in college at a high level, and he's being told that he's not good enough to get drafted. So that's got to kill your, your whatever kind of ego you had. You can sort of kill any sort of dreams you had to play in the show. So the Rays give an opportunity. It's $1,000, no money for him. It's nothing for the Rays. Why not take a chance on a kid like this? Whatever. So Brasso impressed a lot of people with his start in the Gulf Coast League. It was quickly promoted to the Bowling Green Hot Rods in 2017. So in one year, he's already getting promoted through the system. Brasso led the Midwest League in the average and on-base percentage that year. Since entering the, the, the Rays organization in 17, he jumped the ladder through the minor league system really fast. I'm saying fast because two years later, he gets a call-up from AAA Durham and makes his major league debut the following day, going one for five with a single in his first at-bat. Now, we, you know, the, the title of this fucking podcast, End of the Bench, and we used to do a lot of Bench Player of the Week. Well, this guy, Brasso, 
as a bench player of the year nominee. I mean, the, the story of coming, not getting drafted, signing for no money, going through the system very quickly in two years, uh, in three years. From 16 to 19, he got to the bigs in 19, in 2019, being an undrafted guy. Is he a starter? No. He's a utility guy. He plays around. Has he started in some postseason games? Yeah, he started at third base majority. That's where his position is usually, his third base. I think a little second as well. But then he hits this home run against Chapman, the guy who throw at his the guy who threw at his dome piece, and he crushes. He turned around a hundred miles per hour to left field. You know, nowadays everyone's throwing ninety nine to one hundred and one, hundred and two. It was a good idea. I mean, Brasso wouldn't be the only guy that's sitting fastball, right? But you know. Chapman has a good slider, slider too. A lot of movement, real fast, 91, 92 miles an hour. That's really all he has, a fastball slider. So Chapman lets up this home run. They win the game, and the Rays win. So what do you do as a Yankee? As, a, as the Yankees go on to – oh, actually, before I go on to the future, is the future is told. The Rays celebrated in dramatic fashion, by the way. They were literally, literally dancing on the Yankees' graves. They played – New York Empire State of Mind by Jay Z, which is a you know a staple from the, for Yankee fans and New Yorkers as well, and then the theme song theme from New York, New York by the great Frank Sinatra. The best video I saw was was G Man Choi on his Instagram live drinking beers and smoking cigar and dancing and whatever. But let's look ahead at what maybe the Yankees can do to improve next year. So what do they do? Entering the offseason, the Yankees have four big-name players entering for agency. You have J.A. Happ, James Paxson, Masahiro Tanaka, and the AL batting champion, D.J. LeMahieu. Now, obvious thing to do is give a long-term deal to LeMahieu. LeMahieu is going to be 32 years old. Okay. So, we've seen in the past giving guys long-term deals after the age 31, 32 season. A lot of the time, it doesn't really pan out. So, if I was Cashman... I give him a blank check, say, look, we'll sign you. Look, if I was going to do a deal, four years with a fifth-year option for, I don't know, $120 million. It's a lot of money per year, right? The guy's worth every penny. He just won his second batting title. He's the first player in Major League Baseball history to win two batting titles, one in each, one in each freaking league. And he does it with this, you know, this the weird swagger. It's not like this hot, you know, a r- real swagger. I'm talking about like a, like a Juan Soto or or Acuna or a Bauer, where you can really see the swagger come onto the screen. You know, Lemayu has this weird cold swagger where it's like it's business twenty four seven three sixty five. I'm gonna keep a cold, you know. Stone face on. I'm not smiling. I'm not showing emotion. I'm just going up there and I'm mashing every single at bat. So I gave him a blank check. Whatever number you want, put it on there. We'll get it done. So the other three, I think Cashman should go and come bring back Tanaka. Tanaka has been a, a veteran Yankee for a long time now. He's a fan favorite. I think they really can care less about the fan favorite stuff because I think anybody would be a fan favorite if you excel. But I would say Tanaka would be a great guy to come back. So you bring Tanaka into the rotation. You have Severino coming back in the next year. Let's hopefully he can pitch well after getting TJ surgery. And then you have you have the the goat Garrett Cole in the rotation. So you have three of those three of those guys. Okay, then you have James Paxton and J.A. Happ. You kick J.A. Happ to the curb. Done. Don't need him anymore. You don't need him. What you do need is maybe you sign Paxton to a one-year deal. Signing Paxton to a one-year deal, you're not spending a lot of money. He hasn't really proven himself as a Yankee. We know what he's done in the past with the, with the Mariners, really excelling well. The, the Yankees trade away some prospects to get him. Give him a one-year deal. He's also coming off of injury. So the Yankees are all in Cashman are in the driver's seat when it comes to spending money with him. But what are you going to do about the other free agents that are out there? The two big-name guys, three three names that come to my head pretty fast, 
not including LeMahieu, because hopefully the Yankees get him, is Michael Brantley, JT Romuto, and Trevor Bauer. Those three guys come to mind right away. Look, you don't need outfield. Brantley, he's a great fit. I think the Astros may, might sign him long-term, which would be a good idea if they, to do that. He just mashes. He's done a great job in the postseason so far. But they need to go get these two guys. I think out of the two guys I said before, Bauer or in Real Muto, I think the number one guy I think they can get out of those two is Real Muto. JT has done a great job in Philly. He's done an absolutely great job so far in his career. He's probably the best catcher overall. I say he's the best catcher overall when it comes to defense and, and also swinging the, the stick. But defensively, he's a stud. I know Yachty is still playing. You know, Salvador Perez is a very good defensive catcher, right? I think JT is is going to be in the conversation as the, one of the better defensive catchers in the league, maybe even better than those two. Arguably, his great arm, can call great games, and he can mash. The Yankees haven't had a good catcher that can do both of those since Jorge Posada. It's been a long time. The Yankees have taken gambles. On Gary Sanchez. They could have traded him away. And that Cliff D. The, the Cliff Lee rumor trade years ago. They, I think the the Indians wanted Sanchez. Someone can fact check me on that. I hope, hope I'm right on that. But Gary Sanchez has had so many opportunities. To get better behind the plate. Swing of the stick. His first year call, getting called up. He mashed. Nobody knew how to get him out. Over the years, he struggled, and he showed great signs of being this power, you know, power hitting catcher. Which finding a power hitting catcher nowadays, or in general, is extremely hard. Extremely hard to find that. But lately, the last two and a half, maybe almost three years, the guy struck out a ton. His batting average is horrible. It's in the low twos. Even even like the middle middle ones, like a buck seventy five, buck eighty, it's not good. And talk about his defense, he is up there with Wilson Ramos as one of the worst catchers in the league defensively. Look, they even the Yankees even brought over the defensive the, the catching coach from the Minnesota Twins. They, I, I'm, I'm, his name's blanking to me right now, but that coach taught Mitch Garver something that the all of Major League Baseball is a, is taking notes about. The if you if you watch Mitch Garver last year, he was starting to do this one thing called like putting one knee on the ground, one knee up and catching. It's an easier frame job. Is it is it harder to throw second base? Absolutely. But when it comes to framing and really really helping the pitcher out when it comes to when it comes to their game and pitching, I think they it made Mitch Garver a better catcher overall. And that was one of Mitch Garver's strong, um, um, I guess not, I would say least, I guess his least impressive is the, the one thing he wanted to work on the most was his defense. His hitting was there, right? He had 31 home runs in 2019. This year he was rattled with injury and didn't play great at all. But the defense was there for Mitch. The Yankees brought that catching coach over to help Sanchez. And I remember seeing in the in the offseason, he's doing the one knee thing. He's doing it. He's actually he looks like he lost some weight. Maybe he can be a good defensive catcher. Hey guys, he still sucks. It's over. The Sanchez era needs to end in New York. There's so many opportunities. I mean, when you have Kyle Yashioka, nothing bad about him. But when you have Kyle, you have Higgy becoming Coles. Primary catcher. That's a bad sign. If you're Gary Sanchez. Hickey started in a lot of playoff games this year. When Sanchez was on the bench. Being a late game pitch hit opportunity guy. That's a little scary. Hickey played great in the postseason. He hit pretty well for a guy who's not known for hitting. His defense was awesome. He called great games. He wasn't just a personal catcher for Cole. He caught a lot of games. So something to take in mind. Maybe maybe, maybe this offseason, the Yankees trade Sanchez. Sanchez is a DH. Maybe he can catch for a team if they need a catcher. Okay. 
you also have James McCann, who's also another free agent catcher, who's, who's the last two years has been an amazing hitter, which the early half of his career, he wasn't a hitting catcher at all. He was barely batting over 200. But what I got to say is Sanchez era, I think, is done. And I think Miguel Andujar, his career as a Yankee is over. Gio Urshela is a primary third baseman from now and will always. Last year, he came out and broke out on the scene, right? He played great. Coming into the season, if Andujar can play, we put him in left field. He can DH, play a little first base, touch third a little bit. He gets hurt again. Gio's the guy. Maybe you put a package together. And you put Andujar and Sanchez in a package, you get a nice, nice item back. Maybe that's what you do. Or maybe you go get Trevor Bauer. Who knows? Bauer is bouncing around. He had a he's gonna probably win the Cy Young this year. He's gonna to want to ask a lot of money. He's he's a guy that likes to do the one year deals and likes to make that high qualifying offer, which it just went up again. I think it went up another million. So I think it's eighteen point nine million dollars now or eighteen seven. So he likes making his money. He's doing he's doing something that no one really does, which is make a boatload of money year in and year out. He's doing something. And this was a year that he was supposed to prove himself. He was, unfortunately, I've been a fan of his over the last two years now, but he's been kind of a above average, maybe a little bit above average pitcher. This year, he has destroyed the haters. He freaking shoved this year. So I think he's going to get a shit ton of money for wherever he goes. I would say maybe the Yankees. I don't know if him and Cole are friends now. I don't know because they used to pitch in UCLA. And I think there was some sort of bad blood, but I don't know how much of that's true. You have the Padres. Could be a great spot for Trevor Bauer. We'll talk about the Padres in a second. Because Mike Clevenger and Trevor Bauer, best friends. Clev got traded over this past trade deadline from the Indians to the Padres. Who knows? Maybe he'll stick with the Reds. I don't know. But that's the Yankees. The Rays, on the other hand, they're playing the Astros. And let's talk about the Astros. They, the Rays won game one of the ALCS. Thank the Lord. Great pitching from this Rays bullpen has been, it's been a huge plus. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think the Astros might have a tough time winning this series is because the Rays bullpen is so solid. They have Fairbanks, Anderson, I mean, they have, uh, was it Castillo? And I think Alvarado just got put back on. And the guys, they have a solid, solid bullpen. And oh yeah, by the way, if it actually has to go to a game six, game seven, they can throw in a Morton or they can throw in a Snell or they can throw in a Glass now, whoever's available to throw out of the pen. They have great options in that bullpen. Great options. And the hitting's been very timely. Randy Rosarina, Lau, uh, it's been, a, it's, Perfect, timely hitting. And that's one of the things that Aaron Judge said in the post game. I was working that night at WFIN, so I got to listen to the whole post game. And one thing he did add that was very interesting, very telling, was that the difference between the Rays and the Yankees winning was timely hitting. In the three games the Yankees lost, they left a total of 18 runners on base. You can't win playoff games like that. Stanton played great. Judge, I think he had three or four hits, and I think three of them were home runs. Whatever. So, like, he's cranking home runs. He needs to hit better. Gleyber Torres started to hit out the last couple games. DJ's there. The offense is not the problem, necessarily. The timely hitting is, a, is a definitely a big thing. But I would love to see Clint Frazier be the starting left fielder next year. Garner's getting older. He's accepting. He started to accept the role now as a platoon outfielder now, splitting time. You have Aaron Hicks. Who I, if he was just stayed healthy all year, he can be an easy 25 and 85 guy, which we've seen something close to that before. Imagine this is the roster next year. Behind the plate, real muto. At first, your home run leader in Luke Voigt. DJ, they re signed DJ to play second. Torres at short. GU at third. Clinton left. Hicks in center. Judge and right and DHing to Stanton. Clint Frazier has, has proved himself. He can do it. He's cranking out home runs. He's playing actually good defense. They can do it. Now let's just go. I, I got to end this series. Let me talk about the A's and the Astros. Home run derby, man. Like a freaking home run derby. But the A's couldn't hold up. 
I would I said it before, man. They just they just can't hold up. It's pretty embarrassing to say the Astros barely made the playoffs. Barely. And they still won this series. It's so freaking aggravating. It's so aggravating. I mean, game one, Correa before game one was talking so much shit. And then he cranks out some home runs, two of them actually, in game one. And they take they take game one and they won. And then it was just, it was Astros all series. That's what it was. It was home runs after home runs. The Astros pitching, they have these no-name guys and they're actually pitching great. It's so aggravating. I can't even talk about it anymore. It pisses me off. I am the biggest Tampa Bay Rays fan this week. The biggest. Because they need to beat the Astros. Now let's play devil's advocate here. What happens if the Astros do win this series and they go to the World Series, right? What does that mean for baseball? Well, it could be a benefit, right? We could be seeing the Astros go to the World Series now. Think, uh, imagine if the Dodgers, Dodgers have a chance. They can easily go to the World Series. Imagine we see a Dodgers-Astros rematch in the World Series after we know they cheated for the World Series in 17. Imagine we see that. What kind of postseason World Series matchup that would be? And it goes seven games or six games and the Astros lose? That would be the biggest story arguably in sports. Right, we just had the Lakers win the win the NBA Finals, huge in the bubble. They didn't get zero. They had zero positive tests over the last, I think, forty five days. Right, they've killed it. They've killed it. I think it was actually the whole NBA whole bubble uh, system in Orlando. They killed it. Imagine we see that Kobe Bryant dying was a huge story. If the Dodgers beat the Astros in the World Series after the Astros fucking cheated, that would be huge. But also, there's a part of me that I don't want to see them advancing because I want them to lose. I don't want them to succeed. I want Carlos Correa to shut his mouth. He's the only player on that team that is actually talking about and hyping hyping up the team saying, you know, we were counted out and everyone's counting us out. You know what? We're, We're not getting treated with the respect. Dude, why don't you shut up? And just put your head down and start winning games. That's all you can do. You're not even accepting the fact that you guys cheated. In the freaking spring training, you were telling Bellinger to shut his mouth when he was talking about you guys cheating. He's doing everything wrong. His PR team has to be losing his... They're probably losing their mind. they absolutely losing their mind. And they end up winning the series. The Padres and Dodgers series was epic. Dodgers take the series. They advance to the NLCS to play the Braves. But the biggest game was in game two against the Padres. You had the biggest web gem we've ever seen of recent memory. I wrote a blog about Cody Bellinger making the catch of the year. But where does this rank amongst the best catchers in postseason history? And I'll talk a little bit about that right now. So he makes this catch. He robs a home run from Fernando Tatis. That at bat, first of all, Bruzar Grattle on the mound for the Dodgers. Hardest throwing fastball, hardest throwing pitcher in the bigs. He has the shortest stride, shortest arm angle. He sh- he's, he's like short arming the entire, his entire uh, pitching motion, and he's throwing 102. Then you have... MVP candidate Fernando Tatis at the plate, mashing home runs left and right during the regular season. He struggled a little bit during the postseason, but he crushes this ball dead center field. And Bellinger was shaded over to the right a little bit, and he had a little ways to go, and he makes this unbelievable web gem catch, robs him of a home run, and they end up winning the game and winning the series. It was amazing. But where does this rank amongst the best? You have... Game one of the 1954 World Series, the Willie Mays catch, the catch, where he's his bastard catch. And remember, they're playing in the polo grounds, the the New York Giants and Willie Mays, right? Deep center field at the polo grounds was 483 feet from home plate. There's only been, I think, let's see, schoolboy row, 
Luke Easter, Joe Adcock, Hank Aaron, and Lou Brock have hit home runs to dead center field after they remodeled it in 1923. You have the Andy Chavez snow cone grab in Game 7 of the 2006 NLCS. Everyone knows that. The Mets were stacked that year, 97 wins. They had a ridiculous roster with David Wright, Jose Reyes, Beltran, Delgado, LaDuca, Wagner, Paige Martinez, and Tom Glavin. But the the star of this series was Andy Chavez robbing Scott Rowland of a home run. And then he has the wherewithal to throw it back into play, and they double up Jim Edmonds at first to end the inning on a double play. One of the best postseason catchers of all time. And my, personally, one of my favorites. I think Ballinger is now my favorite. Now Jim Edmonds again. Jim Edmonds has one of the best highlight reel packages you can put together ever. But he adds another one to his highlight reel of a Game 7 uh, diving catch robbing uh, Brad Osmus of a double in Game 7 of the 2004 NLCS. And they ended up going to the World Series to play the Boston Red Sox. And they lost to them. That's what the curse of the Bambino, whatever. The blah, 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 blah. It was a bad series with the Yankees and Red Sox. Don't even relive that again. But Edmonds making this catch. He's probably my favorite. I think he might be my favorite center fielder of all time. Michael Brantley. Last year, game six. Robbing a blue pit from Aaron Hicks. Doubles off Judge at second. Amazing catch. Amazing play. But sometimes it gets overlooked. Because of DJ LeMay, who's home run in the ninth inning, tying the game. And then, of course, fucking hose out to It's a walk-off home run, and they go to the World Series. And thank God they lose against the Nationals. And then my last I wrote, last one on my list I wrote was Kirby Puckett's uh, timing, perfect timing of a leap onto the plexiglass at the Metrodome uh, in Game 6 of the 1991 World Series. He then later on hit a walk-off home run forcing a do-or-die game. That was, we'll see you tomorrow night. And then the epic Game 7, 1991 World Series game with Smoltz and Jack Morris, you know, complete game shutouts going into, I think, the extra innings. It was freaking ridiculous. But Bellinger is, is up there as one of the better catches we've ever seen in the postseason. Absolutely spectacular. That was, and then the Dodgers, not, really the, not the Dodgers, the Marlins and the Braves series. Braves won that series freaking so easy. It was a great story, though, for the Marlins beating the Cubs, advancing to the NLDS. But the Braves pitching with Kyle Wright and Ian Anderson and Max Freed, three-headed monster like that going into the next series against the Dodgers is going to be big. They don't have a huge power arms in that Braves bullpen. They have a nice, decent guys, Chris Martin and Darren O'Day. They have some good arms, Mark Melanson. So they have arms in there. The offense for the Braves is huge. Freddie Freeman's probably going to win the MVP. You have Ronald Lacuna. You have Marcelo Zuna, who's an MVP candidate. I think he had a career year with batting average. I think career year overall. Uh, Dansby Swanson and um, uh, Ozzy Albies. Old school Nick Markakis out there. right? Uh, Adam Duvall, who had a ridiculous September. So they have a lot of offensive guys. And Travis Darno, who was the guy in that NLC, NLDS series, he mashed home runs. And timing perfectly. So they have a very equal roster. But against the Dodgers, I think the Dodgers will come out with a win in that series and go to the World Series again. My bracket is absolutely destroyed. Flat out say that. So let's talk about the last couple topics I have here. You have the Joe Morgan passing. Terrible news this morning. Uh, Hall of Fame second baseman. Joe Morgan passed away at the age of 77. He had a lot of um, reoccurring health issues issues. I think it's not COVID related. So there's a lot of health issues over the last couple of years. I had the, the pleasure of meeting him. I was doing, I think I mentioned before on the podcast, I got an autograph and I talked to, and you've heard it, Pete Rose on the podcast doing an intro before. It was Pete Rose, Tony Perez, and Joe Morgan in the same booth in a um, memorabilia shop down in Cooperstown, oh, up in Cooperstown, if you're from New York. Uh, and Joe Morgan was sitting there. I wanted Joe Morgan really bad, but I picked Pete Rose because I thought it was uh, made more sense, but I said hello to Joe Morgan, shook his hand, and very nice. That was really it. And then I got another his former team, his other teammate uh, Johnny Bench later on that day. But he's one of the best second basemen ever. Ten-time All Star, two-time MVP, two-time World Series champion, five-time Gold Glover. He played. He was one of the key members of the Big Red Machine in the '70s for the Cincinnati Reds, and he did 25 plus years in the in the booth broadcast booth 
with John Miller at ESPN. He was a voice you always heard about. You always heard the voice, and I was always hyped because Joe Morgan, uh, iconic player, but a great baseball mind too. And one of the better bat, uh, batting stances too. He had like the, the flap, the wing flap that he would he would do. I think he was a switch hitter as well. Uh, did not have 3,000 hits, but he is one of the better offensive hitting catch, hitting second basemans the game's ever seen. And one of the most respected guys in the game. Um, a great baseball mind, a great player, great human being, great guy in the, in the broadcast booth. Unfortunately, he is passed. And it was, uh, it's been a tragic time because he's not the only Hall of Fame that's passed away in 2020. You got Al Kaline, Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, and just as of last week was the great Yankee right uh, left-hander Whitey Ford who died at the age of 91. Horrible. Now, Whitey Ford is, you know, he's a great family man, military veteran, but everyone knows him as this Hall of Fame pitcher. The chairman of the board, which his nickname, was a part of six World Series titles, 11 American League pennants in his 16-year career. Are you kidding me? Ford was also, excuse me, Ford also has the most wins in Yankee history with 236. He has the best winning percentage for any pitcher with at least 300 career decisions. His best season was in 1961 when he went 25-4 and with a 3-2-1 ERA in 283 innings. He also won the Cy Young and the World Series MVP in that same year. I mean, it sounds pretty good to me, right? But where he shined the most was in the World Series. He started game one of the World Series eight times in his career. He's won more World Series games than any pitcher in Major League Baseball history with 10. And at one point, he broke Babe Ruth's record of consecutive scoreless innings in a World Series with 33 and two-thirds innings of shutout ball. After winning six World Series championships and making 10 All-Star games, he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. But before that happened, the Yankees retired as number 16 on Saturday, October, August 3rd, 1974. And nine days later, he got inducted to the Hall of Fame with his best friend, Mickey Mantle. And the stories between Mantle and Whitey Ford were incredible. I've heard countless stories the past the past week or so talking about it. And what's pretty funny is my um, great-great-grandmother, who was passed, unfortunately, she passed, which was 101, Grandma Esther, shout out. She was neighbors for a long time in the same building in Florida with Whitey Ford. My mama has stories of meeting Whitey Ford, getting autographed balls, but she can't find the autographed ball at all, um, saying that he was a very nice guy. He was always nice to the kids, very good. Ba- and, and just to talk about him as a player and as a baseball mind, the stories that the players would talk about with him, the guys that were younger guys now, you know, during the um, all-timers games, you have opportunities as the players that are on the active roster to sit in the dugout with these Hall, Hall of Fame and unbelievable pitchers. And Whitey Ford was a guy that always talked to the young kids and was always a guy to chew their ear out and just, just tell them about the game, tell them stories, tell them how to pitch, whatever. But we're going to miss, we're, we're missing out on some amazing Hall of Famers I've left. Bob Gibson was, I think, a week ago in Whitey Ford. Tom Seaver, the great Mets pitcher, one of the best pitchers to ever play, and then amazing outfielder for the Tigers, and Al Kaline, and now Joe Morgan. 2020 just sucks, man. Then you had Kobe earlier in the year, and the coronavirus, all this bullshit. Just fucking terrible. Just really bad. And uh, last just note here for uh, baseball, Chicago White Sox part ways with manager Rick Renteria, which is super random. Like, why would they part ways with him? Renteria spent the last four seasons with the White Sox, finishing a record 236 victories, 309 losses. He just brought the White Sox to the postseason for the first time since 2008. Yes, they lost in the wild card round to the A's, but this is a big move for the White Sox as a franchise. You have a lot of these young guys are starting to get complete. They're starting to play together a lot. So you think that this would be a, a nice career, maybe sign long term. Who knows? But his first three seasons, they weren't great. 67 wins, 62 wins, 72 wins. Not good. They signed big-name free agents the past offseason. You know, they made additions with Yasmani Grandal and Dallas Keuchel, Edwin Encarcion, Gio Gonzalez. Gio Gonzalez wasn't that great of an addition, but whatever, he's good on. Um, But, yeah, it was very weird. And, you know, 
White Sox GM Rick Hahn talked to reporters Monday indicating the team would look for a manager who could take it to the next level. Ultimately, I think the best candidate or the ideal candidate is going to be someone who has experience with a championship organization organization in recent years. Recent October experience with a championship organization. That's what Rick Hahn said. And also Hahn said that pitching coach Don Cooper, who has been with the team since 2002, is also out. It's very interesting to see that. I think these guys actually liked Rick Renteria a lot. When it comes to you know, letting a manager go, it's either like you, know, you have a lot of losing seasons, there's arguments, there's not a lot of team chemistry within the clubhouse, with the team. But honestly, it looks like these guys were actually gelling. Look with Gilito and and uh, Dallas Keuchel and maybe Lopez can get his act together. Act together. Maybe you can go out and spend some money and get some active guys on the. In the there's a lot of good pitchers on the free agent market for this offseason. They have a freaking really good roster, man. They got a young core in the outfield. They got a young, Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu, Grandal, uh, Jimenez, and freaking. Lewis Roberts, man, they got a young, talented hitting team. I think this is a bad move. I think give Rick, Rick Renteria one more shot. I know they made it to the playoffs. They did collapse towards the end of the year. They were a first-place team, and that's AL Central, and they got to a, I think it was the seventh seed. So I think they should have given him one more shot. That's personally me. But I, I know I just talk a bunch about baseball. I can talk baseball for hours. I just talk baseball for about 40 minutes. But let's get into the second part and last part of this first part of the podcast. Dak Prescott, horrible injury. I know I told you I'd be sticking more to baseball, but I can't not talk about this. Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott out for the year with surgery for a compound fracture and dislocation of his right ankle. If you saw it live, it was horrible. You know, in in the ESPN Sports Center, wherever you're to watch their highlights, they're going to blur it out. But if you got to see it live, it was horrible. And they're showing replays on Twitter. You can see the break. His ankle was sideways. It was horrible. He's out for four to six months. His year is over. So it was a compound fracture and dislocation to his right ankle that required surgery Sunday night. I was watching the Seahawks game, which was a great game, by the way. Great game. Ross for MVP. The injury occurred on a... Nine-yard run while being tackled by the Giants' defensive cord, uh, <coughs> defensive back Logan Ryan in with six minutes to go in the third quarter. And Dak's playing great all year. He's been playing great. Dak left the field on our, on he was left in the cart. He was in an air cast. He was crying, shedding tears. It was horrible to watch because this is a guy who's proven a lot of people wrong, and he's had a real tough year. He got the surgery. He's being released from the hospital, expected to be released from the hospital on Monday. And his timetable, like I said before, is about four to six months. This year's done. But the year for Prescott has been has been extremely hard for him. We know it because he's told about it. He's talked about it. Prescott mourned the death of his brother who killed himself in April. You had Prescott talk about his mental health. And being a real advocate for mental health awareness, which I think was on Sunday. And now he breaks his ankle. Fracture. It's just bones popping out. I can't imagine what the guy's going through right now. And this was another year where he's going to try to get paid again. Because we all know he signed another one-year franchise tag worth $31.4 million. And now... He was trying to go and get that long-term deal. The Cowboys did offer Prescott a five-year deal worth $34.5 million per and over $100 million guaranteed. Look, in the past, I've said, which is very ironic, I said that Andy Dalton and Dak Prescott were, this was last year before he went off in his 5,000-yard passing year, I thought Dalton and Prescott's numbers were pretty identical. They were kind of the same. They weren't that great. It was a pretty much basic average. And now look who's coming in for the rest of the year for the Cowboys is Andy Dalton. 
He was 9 of 11, 11 uh, 111 yards, including a 38-yard pass to Michael Gallup with three seconds left to set up a Greg Zerloin winning 37-yard field goal, and they won the game 37-34 against the beat the my New York Giants, who are god-awful. But what is this going to do for the future for Dak? I think Dak's future is going to be rough. It's it's going to be rough for the next year. Four to six months to just recover from it. And then there's, with that recovery, you could be even longer. They're probably going to extend it even longer With it come, when it comes to rehabbing and putting pressure on the ankle. Look at Alex Smith. He just did the impossible this past weekend after two years after breaking his leg, leg popping out, saying hello to everybody. He comes back two years later. He plays, and he does a great job just getting back out there. And I think Dak will be that guy when he comes back. The thing is, are they going to pay him a lot of money? Are they going to be paying Dak another $31 million just to sit on the bench? That's going to be the big question coming into it. So I think that the Cowboys and Dak can worry about that down the line. Dak just needs to get better. He will get healthier, and he will get better after this tough year mentally, family problems, awful situations. But I think this will make him even stronger mentally and physically, and he'll be back on the field in no time. So that's the first part of the podcast. Very long. I know it's about almost 47 minutes now. When we come back, we'll talk about OU Texas and the Lakers winning another title, and where's LeBron stack up amongst the best Lakers of all time. Okay, let's talk about the big game in college football, my Oklahoma Sooners versus the number 22 ranked team in the country, the Texas Longhorns. The Red River Showdown. Shootout, whatever you want to call it, four overtime thriller. 53-45 OU. And when I tell you this, guys, if you didn't watch the game, you missed one of the all-time college football games that we've ever seen. Definitely in the last 10 years, this is one of the all-time games. Back and forth affair. Both these teams pretty much stink. 2-1 Texas, 1-2 OU. OU's dropped out of the I think it was the top 25 for the first time. God, I think it's from 2002, I think it was. 2005, who knows? doesn't matter. The point of it is that the Sooners won. Sam Elliott, this guy, everyone says he's really great. He's good. Look, Elliott played decently. What, two touchdowns, two interceptions, 30 for 53, almost 300 yards passing. But he's 1-4 career against the Sooners. One and four. There was a lot of takeaways from this game just from watching the entire game, every single snap. Then I, I was, I would say from the entire fourth quarter. No, let's scratch that. I'd say with the final five minutes of the third, or the fourth quarter, to the last overtime, I was standing up in front of my TV, glued to the screen. So I watched the whole game, but the last. The fourth quarter in all overtimes, I was glued. I know everything that happened. When Josh Moore caught that nine-yard pass from Ellinger to bring within one touchdown, I was like, holy shit, the, the Longhorns would have come back and win this game. That was with 3.20 left with 14 seconds left. Two-yard pass from Ellinger. Oh, God. Ties the game. And then it just goes back and forth. And with college football overtimes, it goes, you have... Yeah, every team has a shot to score. Say like OU scores the first time around, and then the Texas Longhorns have a, t- a chance to tie it. They don't get the touchdown. Game over. Game is over. It's such a weird ass backwards sort of overtime. They start on the twenty-five yard line, and they go ahead and do it. They're going back and forth. They ended up winning the game. OU in the fourth overtime, twenty-five yard pass, beautiful catch by Drake Stoops. And then they get the two-point conversion. And then the final drive, Ellinger throws a pick. Game over. Trey Mason catches it. (coughs) 
Um, it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. Exactly what you wanted to see in a thrilling overtime victory from this team. What is the takeaways from this ball game? I'll tell you this right now. You have a couple here. Positive times. The def- the running game for the Sooners, there was actually a running game. There was four total touchdowns, but TJ Pledger, 22 carries for 131 yards and two touchdowns. They haven't had a serious running game at all this season. And re- as of late, I would say this season in particular, we haven't seen a, a serious, serious running game, which is very troubling if you if you ask me. So as a guy that's watched the Sooners time and time again, this is what you wanted to see. You want to see a running game. You want to see a complete team from the Sooners. But you know you're not going to see it because the defense is god-awful. The defense is god-awful. Yet again... In the fourth over in the fourth quarter, they could not hold a lead. It absolutely blows my fucking mind. Why can't the, the freaking Oklahoma Sooners hold a damn lead? Twenty one point deficit. Scratched. Gone. Dunzo. It's absolutely remarkable that they can't do it. It's like you have a lot of talent on the defense side of the ball. You would think that they can actually hold a team. Like, I know I'm taking a long time to get this sentence out, but I have, excuse me, I said Trey Mason before. It's Trey Brown. Make that mistake sometimes. Trey Brown made the final pick at the end of the game. He also he picked the ball off, but he also did a defensive holding, uh, defensive Paris interference play that got the pick back. That was in the middle of the game. But they had a running game. The defense, again, was the big fucking picture. They played great for the first three quarters. You saw linebackers actually tackling and playing really well. You saw the secondary overall playing great man coverage. The deep safeties were playing really great. They're playing really, really well. I was super impressed. Twitter was like, what is going on right now with this team? Where has this defense been the last two years? Because Texas, yeah, they have a pretty good offense, decent offense. Ellinger's not bad. He's good on the he's, he's a great rushing quarterback as well. He had 112 yards, four rushing touchdowns. But the fact of the matter is was the defense gonna hold up all game long. And it didn't. Look, they forced four fumbles. I'm sorry, that was the... They forced one fumble, excuse me. Um, no, they scored... They forced three fumbles. They've only... They recovered two of the three. I was looking at Oklahoma's fumbles. They had a ton. So the defense wasn't there, of course. They fail again. What does this mean for Alex Grinch as a defensive coordinator for this team? The last blog post I wrote, I'm going to write one about this game as soon as I'm done recording this podcast. The Sooners losing last week to Iowa State was horrible on defense yet again. So my question was, is anybody going to be on the hot seat now? Is anybody actually going to be on the hot seat? Well, you had the guys I talked about. Lincoln Riley, is he on the hot seat? No. Everybody can have a tough year or in a rough year in their career. Even Nick Saban's have rough times in his college and coach and NFL coaching career. Let's be honest. Wasn't a good NFL coach. He's pretty good at LSU. He's amazing at Alabama, right? There's been bump. There's been rough patches in coaching careers. We've seen it everywhere. But we haven't seen a defense like this consistently year in, year out. Year in and year out. Last four years have been terrible. But the two years under Alex Grinch have been even worse. You can't be losing to unranked Kansas State. You can't be losing to an unranked Iowa State, which Iowa State is pretty damn good. 
they have a good offense. They're pretty good defense. They're pay, they're going to be competing for the Big Twelve title this year. Watch that. Watch that close. They're going to be competing for a title. Look with this win for Oklahoma. Can they be put back in the driver's seat to maybe compete for a Big 12 championship? Without a doubt. But their national championship hopes, they're gone. Way out the window. They'll never get a chance to, with two losses. It's not going to happen. Texas, they're done too. They're all going to be competing for a Big 12 championship. And yet again, the Big 12 is looked at as a laughing stock around the uh, college football world. They're, they're try- they've been trying for years to lately to be part of that SEC bunch or the Big Big Ten bunch, look the the ACC, the Pac twelve, and and the Big Twelve have been conferences. They want to be a part of that. Look, I know Clemson's freaking killed it in the ACC, but that's that's, that's it. Like, who else is in that conference that can compete? Nobody. So what I'm saying is, it's a power powerful conference out of the Power Five. The Big Twelve has become a laughing stock because there's no defense whatsoever in that conference. Not one team has a good defensive team. Not one team can compete against Bama or against, oh, I don't know, a Clemson. Can they compete defensively? No. We saw it last year. Oklahoma got smoked by LSU last year. But the last thing I'll talk about this Oklahoma game is Spencer Rattler. Look, guy's a freshman. He's a kid. He just turned 20 last Monday. He was god-awful in the first half against the Texas Longhorns. First half numbers, 8 of 13, 68 total yards, one touchdown, two turnovers, negative six yards rushing. At one point, guys, they had three consecutive offensive series with three consecutive turnovers. It was a lot. It was bad. But he 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 did something that proved proved me a lot. He proved a lot to me when he got benched, and Mordecai came in and he did a good job five of seven fifty two yards. He held it together to end that first half. You know there was time when we saw on the, on the sideline Rattler was getting his like sh- shoulder like stretched out. We were thinking fans and writers were all thinking that and even in the booth Gus Johnson Joe Clyde they were thinking this is an injury with his shoulder who knows but what's very interesting to see is that the point of of the benching not because of an injury is because he sucked he had a hard, he had a really bad first half well that very first one against Missouri State was a just a tune up to get the season going but the back to back losses him struggling in late in the game was an issue and then you have this benching here. This was a great idea for Lincoln Riley to sit him out, watch what is going on around you. You are not playing up to the standard that they're supposed to be playing at. Riley has had a very great time so far in his career with Oklahoma. He's had Baker. He's had Kyler, two Heismans in a row, and Jalen Hurts as a Heisman candidate. So three straight years of elite college quarterbacks with elite numbers and elite years and bringing them close to the national championship power, and they were a you know, college football playoff teams. Rattler wants to be part of that legacy, right? He wants to be part of the Sam Bradford legacy and the Jason Whites and the the Baker Mayfields. They want to, he wants to be a part of that. He's a young kid. I have to be a little less on his ass, but the fact that Lincoln Riley benched him was a perfect move to show Rattler Step it up. And guess what he did? He stepped it up in a huge way. Second half numbers with OT numbers. He was 15 of 22, 192 total yards, three touchdowns, and 47 yards rushing. It was a complete night and day stat line. He came up and did a great job. Other takeaways from this game, a lot of mental errors on the Texas off- offensive line. Horrible mental errors. It was just it was pretty embarrassing to be honest with you with how the team looked overall on the offensive side for Texas. Um the defense early on, two sacks, forced fumble, fumble recovery in the first half was great to see in the second half and into the fourth quarter was just terrible. 
So, and there was a bonehead play. Why are you throwing a third down with more than 130 left in the game? Why don't you run the ball, let the clock run out? I think Texas had one timeout left, whatever. That was a bonehead play by, by Lincoln Riley. There's a lot of learning going on. Thank the Lord OU has to buy next week. Thank God. We can actually rest. As a fan, I can just not be screaming in front of my TV. If you saw my Twitter, I was posting videos and live reactions of what was going on. So thank God that's done. Let's get over to basketball and end this podcast out. The Lakers won the NBA Finals last night, beat the Miami Heat in six games. It was a doozy. Okay, It was a blowout. Lakers won in big fashion. LeBron has won his fourth NBA championship Four NBA Finals MVPs and three ti- four titles in a time where he played for three different teams. One with the Cavs, two with the Heat, one with the Lakers. Where does he stack up against amongst the greatest Lakers of all time? What's the big thing is he, he brought back championship basketball back to L.A., back to the Lakers. They haven't seen that in a long time. When the Kobe Palcasol era in the late uh, 2000s, it's like 2009, I want to say, 2010, maybe 2011, they were elite basketball, right? It was great basketball to watch. You know, last year was his first year, Kobe's first year in, in LA. It did not go the, the way he wanted to. He needed an off, another offensive player to help him out. And Anthony Davis was that guy. Absolutely killed it. They won the title. I think you can start putting LeBron in the category of not yet. Maybe if he wants another title, he can maybe get into that category of the best, one of the best Lakers of all time. He's not there yet, but where does he cement himself? The Michael Jordan, LeBron James discussion. Who's the goat? Hate talking about that, but of course, it was a topic of conversation. You know, Michael won six championships, six for six. Didn't lose an NBA Finals. LeBron has lost, I think, one or two. Who knows? I don't really care. I don't care about this conversation. I'm going to care about it when it's all said and done. When LeBron is done, then you can really talk about it. Is he getting to that point where he can be the GOAT? Yes, winning this title, this fourth title with three different teams, it's a fucking cool stat. I'll say that. Congrats, LeBron. Not talking much about it because I've talked way too much in this podcast already. I think it's almost an hour, maybe just a little bit under an hour. Um, Maybe it's over. I don't really know. Um, But all right, so that's the podcast. That is the podcast. Podcast over. Episode 117, we done. A lot of baseball. I'm watching baseball to my left right now in game two of the ALCS. Love to see it. So next week, episode 118, hopefully we can get some guests on writing blogs. Go look up End of the Bench blog on WordPress. I'm there. I'm posting two or three blogs a day. If it's baseball, college football, Anything that's sports-related, it's on there. You can follow End of the Bench on Twitter and Instagram. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Follow End of the Bench on Facebook. We're putting content out, kids. We're putting content out. We will catch you guys either at the end of this week or next week. Who knows? See how I'm doing. Uh, probably next week. If not, you'll see some, uh, you know, see, go, look, go follow my Twitter. You can see. All right, we'll catch you guys on the next episode of End of the Bench. Have a good have a good week. Do your thing. Wear a mask. Talk to you guys later. We out. Peace.
suicide me. She's sending all her friends now, some I know her tracks. Cause all these hoes know what's about to come next. I hit my plug up, got the baby connect. I drop a couple bands, I just wanna go. Man, I just wanna go flex. 